Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to talk about uh, what is without a doubt the most exciting innovation in exercise training I've ever encountered in my 50 years of exercise. And to help us walk through this exercise innovation is one of the experts in this area, uh, Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson, who is a physician, an MD, and also has interest, interest in exercise physiology. So he's studied deeply the science of this and, and uh, sports performance and training. And he trains a lot of elite and professional athletes and Olympic athletes. And, it's, and he hangs out in Park City, Utah. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. So maybe... Um, what for though I didn't mention, but what we're going to talk today is about is uh, blood flow restriction training, which is uh, was developed by Dr. Sato out of Japan, uh, I think in 1966 or so, and I believe you've you've actually met met him and yeah. worked with the organization Katsu Global for a while. So maybe you can um, describe your experience with this, and certainly in in this description also articulate what blood flow restriction training is and then we'll we'll go into some of the really intriguing mechanisms why it works and the unbelievable potential it has for one of the greatest threats to longevity that i perceive which is sarcopenia so why don't you you lead us down that journey um very well um dr sato um had an epiphany in 1966 he was um busy uh, attending a funeral service and he ended up having to sit in a certain position where we would say our legs fell asleep. And um, this reminded him when he tried to get up, his legs didn't work very well. And uh, this reminded him of when he really would exhaust himself with uh, heavy weightlifting. And um, that just kind of stuck in his mind. And then over the next couple of years, he was trying a few things, but uh, uh, in 1973, he had a ski accident and he uh, ended up in a full length leg cast. And um, as most physicians know, these, these full length leg casts produce lots of atrophy. And uh, uh, he had been, uh, in a way, just playing around with uh, this idea of blood flow restriction, but uh, this was an occasion where he could try this out for himself. And what he did is he took a judo belt and he wrapped it several times around the top of his thigh above the cast. And uh, then he did isometric exercises in the cast. And in those days, uh, the casts were routinely changed at six weeks because there typically had been so much atrophy that 
the cast was now loose and we really wouldn't hold the fracture in the proper location. And um, when he reported to the physicians to change the cast, uh, it turned out that um, uh, he really didn't have much atrophy at all. And uh, his ankle fracture and his knee injury were now not tender. And instead of getting another cast put on for another six weeks, he basically just walked out of the clinic. And that was really the uh, point for him to say, hey, there's really something here. And so really for the next 30 years, he um, literally experimented with himself and his fellow uh, bodybuilders uh, trying to understand the ins and outs of what they were calling occlusion training at the time. And um, then in the, in middle, in the de- middle of the 90s, in the decade, um, he had come up, he had learned a number of things over this intervening 30 years, and he realized he needed an elastic band, he realized he needed a relatively narrow band, and he realized that he would, that he could have very good control of the situation if he had developed a kind of pneumatic bladder in which he could control the pressure that was applying this um, uh, blood flow restriction. And uh, then the first paper came out in the English literature in about 1998 and another one in 2000 uh, where uh, he, he and his group conclusively demonstrated that this was effective for increasing muscle strength and uh, muscle hypertrophy. And uh, kind of at the same time, his group had been involved in bodybuilding and, and was now um, doing this at international shows and in, in the beginning to just get a good pump uh, for, for their show. And uh, their European competitors and American competitors would see what they were doing, but they really didn't have the language skills, nor the, nor the Japanese uh, were really interested in sharing what this knowledge was about. Um, so around 2000, uh, maybe a little bit later, uh, the West started trying to reproduce what he was already doing. And, but they didn't have the benefit of this 30 years of experience of figuring out what worked, what didn't work, what was safe, what was effective. And um, so this is when a blood flow restrictions kind of got going in uh, Europe and North America. Uh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, um, so about 2000, less than 20 years, and I'm wondering what your initial exposure to it was and how you got interested. Well, in, in, in my particular case, I, I've had a career uh, in human performance and kind of uh, um, uh, elite performance. I've worked with uh, winter Olympians from cross country skiers, alpine skiers, speed skaters, uh, hockey players, pretty much all the different types. And in the summer Olympics, uh, runners, swimmers, cyclists, triathletes, uh, mainly focused on, um, on endurance sports, but then also, uh, soccer to a large extent. And, um, through all, the, through all these years, and then my day job was a professor at the med school at UT Southwestern in Dallas, but um, uh, through all these years, I always had my eyes out for uh, things that could improve uh, 
athlete's performance as well as um, uh, be very useful for the population in general. And um, in 2011, I happened to run into a colleague at the Marin College of Sports Medicine meeting who told me about Katsu. And Katsu is what Dr. Sato calls um, his form of blood flow restriction training. So uh, my colleague was busy telling me about um, uh, how great this was and um, uh, that you could get improvements in strength in as little as two weeks. And uh, I, I was quite skeptical at first. Um, most of the physiology that I knew about to make significant gains in strength and uh, muscle size, you needed about six weeks. So this didn't quite make sense to me, but um, the short story is I ended up checking it out and uh, ended up contacting Katsu Global and Steve Monotonis, and from there, uh, getting to spend some time with Dr. Sato and um, learning the ins and outs of, of Katsu, which um, in Japan, it's uh, Dr. Sato uh, treats it a little bit like a martial art. There's, he's got his, uh, what's the right word, group of disciples, and uh, it takes you several years to really learn the ins and outs of all this. Um, and in the meantime, you know, you scrub floors and do a lot of things that's kind of kind of a lot of fun. But um, um, being an American, we skipped a lot of the of that kind of stuff and uh, went right to uh, learning about it. And it's actually quite fantastic. And it's really a big paradigm shift in um, how we how we will think about training and how how to think about really anti-aging medicine or using exercise as a medicine for health and fitness. And uh, it's, it's really, uh, it, it will, it will change the way we train. Um, well, it should, there's no question. Yeah. As they said, it's, right. the, it's the greatest innovation in exercise uh, therapy if I've ever seen. I've been fascinated with exercise ever since 68, which is probably about the time you started because we're about the same age and interestingly yeah. grew up in similar neighborhood, very close to each other actually. Yeah. Uh, so the, I, my parents passed away within about two years ago, and I'm very grateful that I was able to mentor them through the system so they never had to die from a medical mistake because that's a significant reason why people die from medical mistakes. Absolutely. Uh, but they didn't. But instead, I believe they largely died from frailty. And I'm really disappointed in myself that I never understood how to treat it, could never help them. So, because the... the they had sarcopenia, and sarcopenia is, pre is massively prevalent, 20%, 25% of 60-year-olds and like 60% of 80-year-olds. So, and it's not just cosmetics or frailty, but it's, you know, 50% of your muscle uh, or tissue is muscle. And it's, it's actually a metabolic organ, an endocrine organ, makes cytokines and myokines, and mm -hmm. actually is a great deposit of glucose. So that's... The primary reason I'm so motivated about it is because of the ability to really effectively address the sarcopenia issue, like no other training. Now, the, the, as you mentioned earlier, your experience and the traditional experience with gaining muscle mass is, is conventional strength training, which is 
anywhere from 60, 70 to 85% of your one rep maximum. And you do that intensely, maybe six to eight reps and a few times a week because you can't do much more than that because you're digging a hole and you've got to recover. But Matsu is completely different. And it just turns everything upside down. So why don't you discuss the differences between them? Because I think that's the, the most radical innovation. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, succinctly that um, what uh, Katsu or our version of it, which is called Be Strong, does is it allows you to get the same benefits you get from heavy standard lifting with very light weights, 20 to 30% of one rep max, and this blood flow restriction training. And what the blood flow restriction is, that, that may sound a little weird or not normal, but really what we're doing is we're limiting the venous outflow out of, out of an extremity and creating a, a situation in the working muscle where it's not getting enough oxygen to uh, sustain or to um, rebuild the energy stores that are used up in the course of that work. And so you set up this metabolic crisis where um, you're not making enough ATP to replace the ATP that you're using. And the consequence of that is, is you perform, get a disturbance of homeostasis, which is just like the disturbance of homeostasis you get with very heavy lifting. And um, the difference is, is that we're doing it by modulating and impeding the blood flow as opposed to doing very hard work, which actually does damage to the tissue at the same time. So um, one of the reasons why you get these effects much sooner than, than typically is because we have um, altered the time scale by not doing the damage, and therefore we're getting the benefits of this exercise in very short order. And uh, Really, we, we've tapped into starting to understand what the real adaptation to exercise is. And it's creating that stress or that disturbance of homeostasis that the body then reacts to in a systemic way and um, uh, tries to move the body forward. At the same time, it has to uh, repair the damage that was done uh, during the course of the exercise or whatever the perturbation was. And... Um, What's really nice about Be Strong or Katsu, which I would generically characterize as elastic pneumatic, uh, relatively narrow blood flow restriction training, is, is that uh, we provide an anabolic stimulus very early on through this systemic effect. And now, one of the things that uh, other papers have shown is it's not just the muscle that's getting better, it's the bone, it's the blood vessels. Um, there's even a study showing that uh, the uh, neural transmission from a motor nerve to uh, a motor fiber uh, is improved by um, blood flow restriction training. And this whole thing, if you take a step back, we, we kind of know that regular exercise helps us all to maintain as much function as we can. Uh, but as we age, we become unable to do those same kind of workouts that it took to recreate this stuff in the first place. Now with Be Strong, we have the ability to uh, do this uh, with very light, easy exercises that anybody can do. And so, therefore, get the benefits of this anti-aging medicine. Okay, so let's dive deep deeper. 
but before we do, let's just agree to maybe just call it generically BFR because there's so many different variants of this and that would include Katsu and be, and be strong and yeah. probably half a dozen others or more. So, well, uh, one of the things to say though, is that I, I we'll, think we'll go into the differences though. I mean, I definitely, that's okay. part of it. Yeah. Okay. I will not, I just, just, just to communicate it, just, just generic. Okay. Because uh, I definitely have a lot of questions for you about the differences and the dangers of the the most significant danger, which is the uh, surgical occlusive uh, approaches that met, I just found out recently many physical therapists are using. So anyway, yeah. I was beyond intrigued when I was introduced. I, actually, I first heard your stem cell talk years ago, and I just never implemented it. But then I, for some reason, there was a Katsu uh, exhibitor at, uh, at the uh, Bulletproof conference I was attending, so I purchased a unit, and I just was blown away with the, with the results I was getting. And I didn't necessarily believe the people in the company what they were saying because it just didn't seem to have a sound scientific basis. So I said, listen, I've got the tools. I'm going to research literature. So I did a, a looked up a few hundred references and wrote a 25 page paper on it, which you were kind enough to review. And, and, and we're going to discuss some of this here, but I, I couldn't believe the mechanism. It was just beyond extraordinary. And what, what I learned and I'd like to discuss now is the, what you alluded to in the difference between or the inability of most elderly, which is an ever-growing population, of course, uh, to engage in this high-intensity exercise. So they can do that. They can physically do it with the lower weights. But even if for some reason they were extraordinarily fit individuals, and many 60, 70, 80-year-olds are, and can do conventional strength training, if they don't integrate some other form of BFR, blood flow restriction training, their physiology is going to limit them from getting the benefits. And, and the reason is, and, and, and this is an important distinction, and what I learned with the reviewing this is that your microcirculations tend to decrease with age. Your capillary growth is just diminished. And that is an absolute essential to uh, supply the, the blood flow to the stem cells, specifically the type 2 muscle fiber stem cells. And if they don't have, have enough blood flow, even though they're getting the signal from the conventional strength training, they're not going to grow. You're not going to get muscle hypertrophy and strength. And, but BFR does that in spades because in the hypoxia that it's great, the relatively local hypoxia, it's going to stimulate uh, HIF1-alpha, which is hypoxic and do Reducible factor one alpha, and then secondarily VEGF, which is fertilize, vascular endothelial growth factor, fertilizer for your blood vessels, which allows those stem cells to actually function the way they were designed to when they were younger. So I'm wondering if you can address that in your perspective, because uh, I think it's really the the primary characteristic that distinguishes this. It makes it such an unbelievably phenomenal exercise. Matt, you're really touching on a, on a good point with respect to um, those of us who are over 60. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that is we just can't do the kind of hard work that we used to be able to do uh, without uh, risking injury or aggravating chronic injuries or that sort of stuff. And what's super about uh, blood flow restriction training is that the loads are light that anybody can do. And we get to that adaptation signal by restricting the blood flow to the, to the working muscle. Um, what's really neat about that is if, if you're thinking about really heavy lifting, 
you have to recruit pretty much all the uh, motor units in a particular muscle or a particular group of muscles to be able to do the lift. And it's that that gets into uh, stimulating the uh, type 2 fibers. And if the stimulus is hard enough, the satellite cells are also stimulated to develop and to uh, make bigger and stronger muscles. Um, which addresses this sarcopenia issue that you that you rightly point out is is a very important problem for seniors. Now, what happens is also because of the hypoxia, essentially uh, the body recognizes it's not getting enough blood flow to the tissues that are exercising, and so you have things like vascular endothelial growth factor and HIF one alpha that are secreted. Um, that are that are enhance the capillarization of the muscle and perhaps the veins and the arteries as well. So, and what's what's really exciting about that is that now all of a sudden we have something that can repair and build endothelium, and that is endothelium is is the first order of business when we're talking about the ravages of um, atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. So one of the big applications in Japan is with uh, cardiac rehabilitation patients and stroke patients where they do um, blood flow restriction training uh, with these people because they can, even if they have some uh, hemiparetic problem or their difficulty walking, they can always do some sort of exercise that stimulates the fibers that are, that are still intact. And... Um, this whole thing is, is a way to um, recruit as many motor units as possible in a, in, a, in a body or a human, and that that in turn uh, then is a very powerful stimulus for uh, reversing sarcopenia or building muscle and building better blood vessels. So all of these things are related. We're kind of tapping into the normal ways that the body gets bigger, but it's just that we can't do those normal ways anymore. S essentially, Dr. Sato found a way to do these things uh, with uh, relatively light and easy exercises and get the same effects that he can get out of standard heavy lifting. Yes, th thank you for bringing that up because it, it alludes to this systemic or crossover effect because even though you're restricting the mm -hmm. blood flow to your extremities once you release those bands these metabolic uh, uh, variables are that get generated and they flow into your blood lactate being one of them we'll talk about that in a moment but it goes and it spreads all this metabolic magic throughout your entire system so they're rehabbing heart patient patients and and stroke patients because this Vegetic, it's, it's, it's literally fertilizer for your blood vessels, gets transferred systemically throughout your whole body so that you, you could be a very powerful way to not only treat strokes, but probably be proactive in, as a powerful tool of preventing Alzheimer's disease, which of course is an epidemic proportions, but also helping you reduce your risk for heart disease, which is another major killer. Of, right. of all of us. So, I mean, you know, one, one, benefit is crazy. One of the things I think about, the one of the ways I think about this is, is I consider um, blood flow restriction training as Drano for the arteries. And we're only as, <laughs> we're only as young as our arteries. So the whole right. thing turns around and we can get those arteries in shape and capillaries and veins also. And so off we go. Yeah, it's, it's really tremendous. So, 
So that's one of the major ways because you're in agreement that the we're able to increase the blood flow to these important satellite stem cells and, and facilitate muscle hypertrophy and, and strength. But in, there's a few other mechanisms that are that uh, seem to be corollary and also beneficial. And that is, um, well, most of us know there's two, two types of muscle fibers, primarily type one and type two, and there's type two A and two X, but the type one are the slow fibers and they, they're endurance fibers and they require oxygen to function. But when you deprive the oxygen, these type one fibers, they, they, they fail pretty, uh, pretty quickly. And you have to rely mm -hmm. on the type twos, which are larger. But, and, they, and especially two Xs, they don't use oxygen. They use a, a form of energy generation called glycolysis. And one of the byproducts of that is lactate. And that lactate's not going anywhere if you're restricting the blood outflow. So it builds up to high concentrations and the water has to flow into those cells, which actually gives you this pump, which is why the Japanese were using it. But you can get an inch, two inches. I'm not sure if you've seen high, uh, even a greater increase uh, in, in muscle size, you know, as soon as you take the bands off. It's just phenomenal. But that lactate increases, but the lactate is not, it's a waste product, but that's the way it used to be viewed. But now we view it as a pseudo-hormone. And that hormone has such powerful benefits. Like, and I'm wondering if you could speak to some of these, like, the, like going to the brain, crossing the blood-brain barrier through a monocarboxylate transporter and, and stimulating BDNF. And yeah. so address that and some of the other things like myostatin that we'll talk about. Well, that, it, it, and, and it's not just lactate in my view. It's, it's, okay. There's a whole series of things that are produced when you disturb the homeostasis in a working fiber. And one of them is lactate. And so there's, we tend to think of these things as local mechanisms. And so whether it's lactate or the hypoxia or a drop in pH, uh, these things stimulate local protein synthesis. So uh, we're already doing stuff to build more and better blood vessels. But in addition, this, um, uh, these factors can go to other cells in the area and help them. But the big deal is that, that we, we recognize this disturbance of homeostasis in our brains. Our, our brains end up saying, wow, you know, our muscles are feeling fatigued or they, they, uh, um, they're running out of gas. It's the same thing that, you know, what, that we're constantly doing. Let's say we're running marathons that I know you, you, done and basically we're kind of listening to our body all the time to see how it's going and we use that same sensory system um, to, to see how it's going with um, blood flow restriction training and the ultimate uh, message is that our muscles are in trouble they're not getting the amount of oxygen they're not re regenerating the amount of ATP that they need to do to do this, and this is happening now in all the fibers, both the type one fibers at the beginning, but they drop out and they recruit to type two and, and let's say type two X, and maybe even, and stimulate the stem cells to uh, differentiate into uh, satellite cells and, and uh, build new muscle fibers. But now this message has gotten into the brain and the brain reacts to it by putting out a neurohumoral systemic response. And this has been uh, well characterized by an increase in circulating growth hormone in the 15 to 30 minutes after an effective BFR session. And uh, 
what growth hormone does is one of the things it does is it goes to the liver and stimulates uh, insulin growth factor one, which also uh, is an anabolic hormone. And, but the growth hormone also goes to fat cells and starts to break down uh, fat to produce uh, substrate. So it's lipolytic, which is also a, a good thing for in, in general, if you have to build new fibers and, uh, uh, all this, this is essentially, it's not just growth hormone. There's basically an anabolic hormonal milieu that is created that amplifies all of these local processes. So now, uh, whatever lactate was stimulating these, the upregulation and protein synthesis, now this is happening again, or to a greater extent because there's growth hormone around to, to help it, to help it do this. And um, uh, so you end up getting uh, adaptation everywhere, not just the muscles that were used in the exercise. And so a way to think of this is that really there's a systemic process. You know, for example, let's say we're doing bench presses. Uh, we're using some muscles, like our triceps, for example, that may be uh, distal to the band, but we're also using our pectoralis major muscles, which are their blood flows just fine, thank you very much, and, and normal because the bands don't get in the way of it, but they also get the benefit. And so the whole bench press gets, gets um, stronger or lifts more, and, uh, and so do all the muscles that are involved in that. So uh, both muscles, proximal and distal to the, uh, to the bands, end up benefiting. Okay, so a few questions on that because there seems to be a bit of a disagreement or a lack of uniformity in the, at least the studies I reviewed with respect to growth hormone. Uh, the, some of the studies suggest it's increased quite significantly, like maybe 900%, nine times above normal or even more. Uh, and, but then others suggest it's not much of an issue and that the growth hormone and IGF-1 increase may not be responsible for it. So I, I wonder if you could address that. Well, well, address that and then we'll talk about the second. Okay. So one of the things to say about that is the studies that do show that benefit, they also had groups doing control exercise or the same absolute workloads uh, of exercise, but without the bands in place. And they did not see any increase in mm. uh, growth hormone or IGF-1 or uh, vascular endothelial growth factor. So, um, it's pretty clear that the combination of light exercise and blood flow restriction training is able to induce a significant growth hormone response out of the brain. Okay. So then secondarily, because it, you, it's stimulating an anabolic benefit, I haven't seen any literature on this, but it would seem that in some way that would be useful uh, to interact with the, the mTOR pathway. Mm -hmm. and. I just haven't seen anything like that because most of the, the, the literature refers to mTOR being activated by insulin or uh, branched chain amino acids, but not necessarily exercise. So one of the things that happens, uh, one of these local uh, reactions is uh, cell surface receptors for growth hormone and for insulin and for a variety of uh, anabolic hormones are upregulated, and so there's an increase in receptor density on the surface of these cells. Any any cells that were used in the course of this exercise, for example, the pecs and the triceps, and um, so now this growth hormone comes along and it binds into these receptors, and that 
stimulates, it's pretty well worked out now that that, that stimulates the mTOR pathway to upregulate ah. protein synthesis. Okay. And so that's where you get this amplification effect. Okay. And so it it's not that the growth hormone is stimulating mTOR, it's just that the hypoxia and the acidosis and the lactic, lactic, lactic acidosis in the cells have stimulated not only protein synthesis locally, but also um, the cell membrane receptors so that they are, uh, there's a greater receptor density and, and whatever growth hormone comes along ends up getting bound and okay. uh, amplifying the effect. Well, thank, thank you for, very much for that clarification. I'd like to delve into, uh, hopefully we've got people excited about this incredible exercise. So I'd like to go and dive deep into some of the details of how that's implemented. Because uh, there's a bit of controversy out there and, and, and you and I are biased, of course, because my perspective is training is from Katsu and, 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 it, and I think rightfully so. I mean, since he's the innovator, he figured this thing out over 50 years ago. Or but it, it took him 30 years of trial and error to do so. Yeah. So, I mean, that shouldn't be discounted. And these Johnny-come-latelys who've done it for less than 20 years, probably in most cases less than 15 years, thinking they know better, you have to be suspicious of. So anyway, let me just break it down. There's the essentially Katsu camp, which uses uh, very narrow bands, elastic bands, and controlled pressures. And then there's another camp, which... I didn't realize it was relatively large, uh, primarily physical therapy based to use surgical, but, but a lot other researchers too, and they use surgical uh, occlusion bands and they actually call it blood flow occlusion, which right. if, if you've read the Katsu literature, you would just like hit your heads and say, what are they doing? Because he's so, yeah, that, that's the only way to, that's the only way to hurt yourself is yeah. if you occlude the arterial inflow. Yeah. So, yeah. Why? I guess why don't we talk about that? Because there's the, the, the size of the cuff too, the width of the cuffs, you know, which is another important variable. And, right. And uh, and the dangers of doing this. Right. So, uh, all all serious complications with blood flow restriction training happen if you happen to occlude the arterial inflow into an extremity, and um, the wider the cuff or the band, the easier it is to do that. If the cuff is rigid uh, as opposed to elastic, the easier it is to do that. And those are the two main factors. And, and these, this, these groups that have tried to use surgical tourniquets or blood pressure cuffs uh, to do this, um, they, they first read Dr. Sato's paper and were very excited, uh, but couldn't get a hold of the Katsu equipment at the time. And... Uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, ended up um, uh, just picking up something that they thought would do the same thing. And unfortunately, um, they uh, really didn't quite understand what Dr. Sato was up to. So, um, but it still can work. It's it just, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, you just have a very narrow window where you need to get some blood, some level of blood flow restriction. But if you get too much, all of a sudden you're occluding the arteries. And so there's a very narrow band of, let's say, pressure or flow that is safe and effective, where when you're using something that is relatively narrow uh, and elastic, then you have a much bigger window in which you can get enough blood flow to be effective, uh, enough blood flow restriction to be effective and still be safe throughout the time period where you're doing this. 
And there's, there's um, one of the secrets, if you will, to this is that the way that um, blood flow restriction training works is the first order of business, when you first put on the, the band, whether it's rigid, wide, narrow, elastic, whatever, is you really want to um, clamp down on the venous outflow from an extremity while at the same time allowing the artery to continue to pump blood in. But at some point, that gets stuck. And, you know, there's only so much blood you can put into extremity before something has to get let out. Now, one of the really important things that we have is we have what we call the muscle pump. Anytime you do any exercise, the working muscles, they contract, and they usually get uh, stiffer and, and a bigger cross-sectional area, or let's say fatter, and that then forces the blood out through the venous channels, uh, pass, pass through the venous blockade. And so you've changed the venous flow from one in which you could think of as a lazy river where the venous flow is continually going back towards the heart to one in which there are intermittent um, obstructions or occlusions of that venous flow with uh, periodic pulsatile high flow states. And that this ends up equaling uh, the arterial inflow. So usually when you get into this, this kind of sweet spot of, uh, of the right amount of blood flow restriction, you have decreased arterial inflow a little bit, but you've really, the big thing is you've changed the character of the venous outflow. And you really can't do that, you can't do that as well uh, with a rigid system as you can with an elastic system because when you have the muscles pumping this big amount of blood uh, past the venous obstruction, if there's a rigid outer casing, there's just nowhere to go. The muscles are getting thicker and even it takes a tremendous amount of pressure to push any blood past, uh, past this venous obstruction. Where if you have an elastic situation, now that elasticity can accommodate the increase in cross-sectional area and this increasing amount of venous flow. So, so what happens is while the rigid wide systems can be made to work, there's a very narrow window where they're both safe and effective. On the other hand, with the elastic, relatively narrow ones, there's a much larger window to get the, get the pressures right and get the situation right for the participants. Okay, well, thank you for explaining that. So we've established that the safer and effective way is, is to not to do the occlusion therapy and to get that sweet spot. So help us understand how the best way to get that sweet spot is and, and maybe go over the ways to test for capillary perfusion by checking your thenar eminence. Yeah, right. Around this other. Um, so one of the, again, going back to that first rule of safety, you want to make sure that arterial inflow is preserved. Uh, you can do that a number of ways. One is you could feel a pulse distal to the band. So you could feel your radial pulse in your wrist. Uh, but actually a lot of non-medical people have trouble finding their pulse in their wrist. So uh, one way that uh, is, is very effective is, is, to, is to just push, push in on your, on your thenar eminence and then release it. And what happens is you see that uh, it goes from white to, to kind of reddish or pinkish and in a relatively short order, a matter of seconds. And if that's the case, then you know the arteries are open. Um, but one of the innovations that we have used with our 
version of elastic narrow blood flow restriction is that we designed our system so that it up to the maximal pressure of the pump, we can't occlude the artery. And in that case, we don't really have to worry about that anymore. So um, pardon the phrase, we've kind of made this idiot proof so people can't hurt themselves. And that's a strong differentiator, particularly from these uh, wide rigid systems. I'm wondering how you do that because typically you require far less pressure to, to get that sweet spot in the arm than you do the leg. Uh, sometimes maybe twice as much pressure. So, mm -hmm. how, so if you can generate that much pressure in your leg, what's to stop that from, from causing damage to the arm because it's so much higher? Um, well, the uh, main thing, and this, this is really what uh, our group has come up with, is um, we've made a situation where at a certain, basically I might show you with one of our, systems. I don't know if you can kind of see this on the mm -hmm. thing there. Basically, there's a series of... And that's a I'm leg at, band. That's a leg band. Yeah. yeah, this is one of our leg bands. And uh, you can see right here, there's a, there's a little kind of um, cylinder that goes uh, from one side to the other. And in that thing, it starts out being flat. And then when we inflate it with air... So you got multiple bladders in there. Right. There's multiple, let's see if we can show this. Yeah. So there it is. Yeah, you can see it that way. You can yeah. see that, yeah. So, like so what's pillows, happening is- A bunch, bunch of pillows lined together. There you go. Uh, we, we call them barrels, but basically when, they're, when there's no air in there or no pressure in there, they're basically two flat sheets of mm -hmm. material. And when we put the when we do put the pressure in there, they become more of cylinder-like. And there's a limit to how big that cylinder can get. And, um, that's, and so the that's the key. So no matter how much pressure we put in there, that there's a there's that limit that is we found out over time with our with a variety of experimentation and looking at blood flow uh, things with it that up to the pressure of the maximum pressure of our pumps, we can't uh, occlude the arteries. Okay. And so that's a really nice safety factor for all the people to use at home. Which isn't in the Katsu bands, because I, I believe the Katsu just has one bladder that runs the longitudinal right. know, the distance and, of the And the that, that is correct, and that's what's difference between B-Strong and Katsu. Um, and with Katsu, it's still possible to uh, occlude the artery, but at, at very high pressures. So Katsu is very safe compared to the surgical tourniquets or blood pressure cuffs, but B-Strong is even a little bit uh, safer than that because we've made it so that uh, people don't have to worry about uh, occluding the bands as long as you put them on in the right place. Yeah. Uh, putting bands on around the neck is not a good, not a good idea. idea. <laughs> so let's get into some of the general parameters for the training uh, mm -hmm. that because that it would be the same for both systems uh, and that at least with the Katsu, I'm not sure what your recommendation is. They recommend restricting the time of occlusion or actually blood flow restriction to 15 minutes on the arms and 20 minutes on the legs. Uh, and then in, during that time engaging in these exercises, typically well, there's a wide range. I definitely want to get your feedback on this because you've been doing it for eight years and, and with some very 
good athletes and probably got enormous experience as a result of that. But the traditional recommendation is like 30, 30 times three or 30, 25, 20 with a 15 second rest for the arms and maybe 30 seconds for the legs. So why don't you share with us your strategy for implementing BFR? So, um, uh, the main thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to create fatigue in the working muscle. And uh, we found over time three or four sets of a particular exercise will do that for you. And we want that first set to last somewhere around 30 to 45 seconds. And then we want uh, what we call 30 to 45 seconds of pseudo rest. Because now, if you remember, we, we talked about the muscle pump pushing blood past the, past the venous obstruction when you're uh, exercising. And that that uh, uh, increases the flow through the system. Well, now when you're resting or pseudo-resting, uh, now you don't have that muscle pump to help you with the flow. So the actual environment in the in the muscle fibers that's working uh, deteriorates even more. And so that's why we generally use three or four sets with a specific amount of recovery in between where the person thinks they're recovering or resting, but they're really the situation, the metabolic situation is getting worse in the fiber. It's all about creating this disturbance of homeostasis and this fatigue feeling. And so, we have a number of variables to play with. We have the pressure in the bands. We have the kind of exercises that we're doing. We have the weight load, the, the weights that we're using, which generally we want to keep very low. And we, we have the number of reps in a particular set and then the number of sets in a, in a, uh, for a given exercise. And then we also have a series of exercises so that when we're done with this whole thing, we've exercised pretty much of the body's muscle mass as we can. And uh, generally that takes, uh, for arms and legs, somewhere around 30 minutes. And um, out of an abundance of caution, we just wanted to say that the band should be in, in that order of business. Uh, this. 30 to let's say maximal 45 minutes worth of exercise. Uh, we start that's out that's with under, that's under a continuous occlusion or an occlusion, but restriction. Cause that, that yeah. contradicts what, what Katsu teaches in their, all their manuals is just like 15 minutes, no longer than 15 minutes on the arms and then release the bands and then 30, 20 minutes on the legs. Well, they, in many ways they correctly, because their system can occlude under some circumstances and out of an abundance of caution, they limit the time just so that you are not doing that. Um, we don't really have that restriction for our system because okay. we've designed it so it can't occlude. But at the same time, we don't want people to, let's say, wear them around for 24 hours or go to sleep with them. <laughs> and, and we also want people to go about business of doing this exercise session. And if they're doing it right, Generally, by the time they've done 15 minutes with their arms or 20 minutes with their legs, they've they fatigued themselves and they've gotten the point of the session. So it, it's time for it to be over. Okay, and I think it. You know, I've seen some of your videos, uh, trainings, at least uh, not detailed instructional videos, but just glimpses of people doing your workouts. And it appears that your some of your exercise 
protocols involves compound movements with both the arms and the, the legs restricted at the same time. Right. So very quick, uh, we start out um, like Katsu does with doing arms first and then legs. Uh, but very quickly, I would say after five to six sessions, we graduate people into using all four bands at the same time and doing exercises that involve most of the muscles of the, of the body. So for example, um, lunges with uh, two pound arm weights or um, uh, burpees is another, is another good one. Um, it it dep depends very much on who it is we're, we're doing it with. Generally, uh, the four band uh, workouts end up um, being uh, uh, quite fatiguing. And so, for example, we wouldn't, we wouldn't go to them very quickly with uh, elderly, elderly people. It's, it's another one of the things where, you know, one of the things that the elderly have some trouble with is just getting out of a chair. So one of the exercises we do with them is we have them getting up and down out of a chair. And very quickly, they become much better at it. And uh, um, so that's kind of kind of thing that uh, that we do with uh, different populations. Now, with some of our Olympians, we're happy to knock them for a loop. <laughs> and well, uh, you the, know, the, the beautiful the beautiful aspect of this training is that the recovery time is so short, as we we alluded to earlier. So much so that you know, I found personally, and I carefully monitor my recovery stats, that I could do it every day pretty comfortably. Unless I'm pushing it to high extremes with respect to closer to 30, 35%, maybe even 40% one rep maxes. But that's a little bit too much and then I do dig up to myself the hole. But if I'm sticking to 20, 30%, I can easily do it every day. So I'm wondering uh, what your experience is. Is it, is it based sure. on their capacity? So yeah, so there, there's, there's an age dynamic to this. Um, where the 20-something or 30-something uh, athlete could probably do twice a day, two-a-days on this, these sorts of things. And with some injured athletes, we end up doing three workouts a day. Um, and uh, where we could never get away with that with uh, standard weights with them. Generally, uh, one of the things that we say is, is that with standard heavy lifting, maybe twice a week, or at the most every other day is the most that, they, that uh, even the 20 year olds can tolerate. Um, but with this, we can do this instead of twice a week, we can do it twice a day. Yeah. Um, when you get to being our age, and it, if I just break things up into, let's say 20 to 40, 40 to 60, and include us in the 60 year olds, cause we're young for our age. <laughs> and, and then the 60 to 60 and on uh, generally, uh, the 20 to 40 crowd can tolerate uh, one, one day a week or five workouts a week. Uh, the, generally, the 40 to 60 can tolerate um, three workouts a week, and the uh, uh, greater than 60 ends up being twice a week. Uh, Interesting. With BFR, really. Mm -hmm. And so it also depends on what, uh, what other, other things you're doing. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. well, because I just want you know, there, there is a, for these elderly who are essentially wheelchair bound, uh, mm -hmm. they're not going to be using weights. All they're doing is body movements. Right. That's it. And, and getting up and out of their wheelchair. So, yeah. right. you know, um, our experience has been 
uh, there's, I might, I might take my parents as an example. My, sure. my, my dad's um, 90, I don't know, two or let's say 93. How long has he been um, doing BFR? Um, about five years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, and you know, he, he's an ex, he's an ex jock and, uh, um, you know, he gets a little grin on his face when he gets that good fatigue signal. Um, but for the life of me, I can't get my mother to do this. And, um, and so, uh, you know, there's, there's social battles going on in terms of uh, what you can get away with. And, uh, we, we basically try to help everybody to the extent that we can. Um, uh, some people like this better than others. Uh, I would say that those that are used to that are used to have been exercising throughout their lives, take to it quite readily. Um, ones that uh, where exercise is something new for them, uh, don't do it quite as uh, often or are not as quite as compliant as, as we would like to see. So we've, we've been primarily focusing on the muscle strength benefits, addressing sarcopenia and frailty. But you also alluded to the fact that it also is good for bone density. And I'm wondering, what your personal experience has been, what you've seen over the years with well, the people who have documented osteoporosis or osteopenia yeah. apply the BFR. We, we have one uh, couple um, who were 67 and 68 at the time when they did this, but they were in the habit of getting DEXA scans every two to three years on themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, they had the very common experience of their bone mineral density decreasing with age. And um, uh, they were they were vigorous. They ate, ate a good diet. They were not taking any kind of osteoporosis medicines at this point, um, but um, they had um, they had one a, a scan in in November of 2015, I think it was, and then in that February, that following February of 2016, they started a Be Strong program where they pretty much did it two to three times a week for the next eight months. And that following October, uh, they got another DEXA scan. And instead of the steady decrease in bone mineral density over the years, now all of a sudden in, in one year or 11 months, they had a 5% or and 6% in the other case, uh, an increase in bone mineral density without doing it with, with, continuing their normal diet, continuing their normal exercise, but just adding a, a be strong workout. Now it, it's a case report. It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, uh, it's an N of two. Um, but it's very promising that, uh, and there's other sorts of examples in, uh, particularly in the Katsu literature where we heal fractures faster and, uh, we do a lot of things that, uh, make bone turnover, um, uh, quicker and better um, yeah, with, with this blood flow restriction. But this is of, our personal example where it's really, really helped. Well, there's a number of studies that point out the increased bone turnover, but I've never seen anything published that shows an improvement yeah. in bone density via DEXA. So I would encourage you to <laughs> assign someone on your staff to write that case study up because it would be a significant contribution to further validate that this is working. All right, and and uh, be very effective pilot data for some osteoporotic clinic to to give yeah. this a try on a regular basis with with a lot more people. 
Yeah, no question. So uh, with respect to optimizing muscle hypertrophy and strength, what would you suggest as the best parameters because within this, the framework that we've, we've discussed? So that, you know, there's some suggestion. Well, the, the, the universal suggestion seems to be to push towards failure or fatigue. I mean, if you're not pushed getting the, to that level, you're not going to generate responses. But even within that level, you can go to 20% versus 30% of the maximum rep, uh, one rep max. And I'm, it seems there's a trend to going to the higher side of the 30% to get more of a hypertrophy benefit. Um, what has your experience been? Or you, you're getting both with, with, you're getting the same results with even the lower ones. Yeah. I, you know, I have not systematically looked at 15% or 20% or 25 or 30% of one rep max in terms of which is more effective. Uh, in our in our view, and firstly, many of the exercises we have, we don't know what a what they're run, you know, what's a one rep yeah, max for sure. push-ups. So, yeah, you know, most of our exercises are some form of calisthenic, maybe with a little extra weight. Um, what the I think the take-home message is that it is otherwise easy, trivial weight uh, that is used to cause the fatigue that then causes the uh, adaptation. And um, so one of the things that we go by in our sessions is we want the uh, individual to uh, feel that they've gotten fatigue. And if they are able to do the same exercises and they're not getting the fatigue, then we, then we increase something. We may increase the number of reps or the, or the number of sets or maybe the weight a little bit or we may increase the pressure that we're using on uh, for them in particular. So we, we play with these vet, with these variables we have, but the, the common denominator is that feeling of fatigue. Mm -hmm. Now, the other dynamic is what an 80 year old feels as fatigue is not the same thing that a 20 year old feels as fatigue. So with uh, the 20 year olds, we can get them so they just can't do one more push up. But with the 80 year olds, um, you know, when they say they're getting tired, then that's enough and they're still seeing the benefit. Excellent. All right, so thank you for that. Uh, I think there, there's a, the other issue I wanted to address is the, uh, the you, your equipment is really good at doing these things, but there's a, another version of blood flow restriction training that, that uh, Sato developed, which she calls cycling. And that really can, I guess you could do it manually, but it'd be really tedious and certainly not convenient. Where there's a mechanical compressor, and it costs more. Uh, the typical, well, Katsu, just to give a brief rundown, they have three levels of, of equipment now. One is their master training, which is for 5,000. Uh, the other is a nano, which is like half the price at 2,000. And then this new one, this is a cycle 2.0, which comes for 800. And these are all automated you program. It's got a computer chip and pumps in there. Uh, and with these automated systems, you can have a cycle. So the pressure will go up for 20 seconds and then down for five. Uh, and do that for several, about eight sessions. And he's, you know, he's very persistent in claiming this may be even superior to what he calls Katsu training or the traditional blood flow restriction training, where you have the continuous pressure. So I'm wondering if you can comment on your experience with that, because I'm sure you've looked at both. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not as enthralled as, as Dr. Sato is with the, with this cycling idea, but um, there, and there has not really been any publications that have demonstrated convincingly that, uh, that it works. Um, at the same time, um, we've had some good discussions about it and uh, there is a reasonable theoretical basis why, why it might work. And that is that part of blood flow restriction training is this business of distending and then emptying the, the vasculature. And uh, you can do that without exercise by cycling, um, cycling the stimulus. Uh, in many ways, you do it with exercise by having a contraction of the muscle and then relaxation of the muscle. So you're getting kind of that distension and uh, relaxation uh, at the same time that way. Um, where doc, Dr. Sato has primarily used cycling has been, um, or at least when I was with them, has, has been in people that really can't do exercises or much exercises. They're bedridden. Or quadruple. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, and so maybe that's definitely better than nothing if they mm -hmm. can't do it. Uh, but very quickly, uh, you get to being able to do some sort of exercise. And uh, you're right, it, uh, to try to do cycling with our manual systems, uh, it would take two pumps and you're sitting there pumping them up at the same time you're then letting the pressure out to try to do that sort of thing. But uh, um, Theoretically possible, but not convenient, by the way. Yeah, the so, way. you know, the comparison of all these different systems and that sort of thing, um, one of the things is we wanted to make our systems very affordable mm -hmm. and we wanted to make them... Uh, eminently safe and we've done that with our design and then our manual uh, system and uh, uh, if we sacrifice the idea of cycling uh, as a result of that we think that's still a pretty good deal for the individual. Okay great. I um, Another question I had was on high intensity training. Uh, several years ago uh, Phil Campbell I connected with and he trained a lot of NFL players uh, with some high intensity sprint work, primarily right. cardio work. And he called it sprint aid. And we think we changed it to peak aid or peak fitness exercises. And I've done those, did those for a while, but I've stopped doing them because I felt they were somewhat dangerous. Uh, but in the process, you, you go through this really, as I'm sure you're familiar with this really intense workout for 20, 30 seconds, and then you relax for a minute or two and you just repeat cycles of that. And in the process, of course, you, you're sweating profusely. And I, I believe the theory was you're stimulating the type 2A and 2X fibers. Uh, and this is a sweating and the complete exhaustion you have was, was seemed to be the two characteristics. And I'm wondering if you would qualify from a scientific basis the BFR as high intensity training. Um, yeah, I, I'd sign on to that. But one of the things that uh, we do is we put the bands on for high intensity training or the hit training, <laughs> and that just really um, for those athletes looking for something that fatigues them, this this really does a trick. So uh, and it accentuates all the things that you talked about. So you know there's profuse sweating, there's a great fatigue signal, and those are the kinds of things that uh, help you adapt. And so. Uh, uh, the, the only difference would be is you don't have to do as many of them when you put the bands on because you just can't. 
Yeah. Well, I have a, a, a personal question for you with, with respect to, to someone who's truly grounded in the, in the physiological sciences and exercise like you are. What is that sweating a result of? Why are you sweating so intensely? Because it's far more than you would anticipate. Or right. Or, and that's, so that, that is a good example of this disturbance of homeostasis and this communication of the disturbance of homeostasis up to the CNS. And the CNS, one of the things that we talked about is it puts out this growth hormone response. But the other thing it does is it activates the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system causes you to sweat, causes you to breathe harder, causes your blood pressure to go up a little bit, your heart rate to go up a little bit. And so really what this is indicates is this, this inappropriately large amount of sweating is a good marker of getting a good fatigue signal in, in the muscle that has now caused a uh, sympathetic activation of, of the autonomic nervous system. Interesting, interesting. So do you use that clinically as you're training your yeah. clients mm -hmm. to, to look for that increased sweating? Right, so, so what we do is we look for increased sweating or inappropriately uh, heavy breathing, mm -hmm. um, that sort of thing. Uh, if they happen to have a heart rate monitor on, having a little higher heart rate than they would otherwise have for, for the work. Um, and that feeling of fatigue in the muscle. And uh, when you have those things, you know you have had a good session. Excellent. Excellent. And you've had quite some extraordinary results. And I think you've been a, a real uh, asset and catalyst for many people winning Olympic gold. So, you know, just... one of the really neat things about this is um, our typical experience is that people get stronger and their muscles may get a little bigger, but they also get leaner because of the <laughs> lipolytic effect of the growth hormone. And for so many of our sports, uh, weight is a penalty. So uh, uh, particularly with our distance runners and our um, uh, ski jumpers and a variety of other athletes where weight is just such a huge penalty, uh, they're very pleased to notice that they become uh, very lean and uh, as well as strong. And, uh, for our ski jumpers, that just helps them fly. Yeah, there you go. So uh, one other strategy that's recommended by the katsu people is something they call katsu walking, where you put the bands on. It could be in a cycling mode, but it certainly could be in a training mode too, where there's just continuous mm -hmm. pressure. And then you go in walking for 20, 30, 40 minutes in your case. Right. So what, what's your experience with that? We, we do a similar sort of thing. Uh, we can do it with four bands with rowing or cross-country skiing. Uh, or cycling or, or jogging. And uh, we do that. And uh, basically, um, 15 to 30 minutes of any of those activities is you've, you've had enough. And, and in the case of running, it uh, decreases the amount of pounding you get and, and in return for, for getting in shape. And, and uh, then we get the same sort of thing. So that whole thing, it would be kind of an aerobic basis for BFR training and, mm -hmm. and that's well established and the other is more of a strength training uh, or a power training uh, thing where you're lifting weights or doing calisthenics or push-ups or whatever. Um, we also uh, use this in the water so you can put four bands on and and you can do five to ten links to the pool and you've had a swimming workout and you don't have to swim 8,000 yards. 
time efficiency but, is a very well it is and particularly for us and maybe the kind of let's say the baby boomer group uh where you know we've got kids to worry about we've got a job to worry about that's busy this this kind of activity allows us to get in a really good workout in a short amount of time call it 30 minutes uh, we can even do it uh, at our desks i've got cuffs right here that we can uh, uh, try to put on and uh, you don't need to drive to the health club you don't need to change things you know, you yeah yeah basically gain well, we'll show you let you we'll let you uh, demo that in a moment but i had okay. just a, i think one of my last questions is on the um, the safety which we briefly discussed earlier because when i was reviewing the literature i had a section on the safety of bfr and and then i was thinking there was really low risk and then when you compare the risk of high blood pressure events, you know, there, it's, it's significant in people who are using conventional strength training. I mean, there are reported cases of people getting a stroke. So if you have uncontrolled high blood pressure, you have to be careful. And, and then I looked at the literature and said, oh, oh my gosh, BFR can cause this, but even worse. And then when I contacted you about this by email, you helped me understand that this was more artifact of the wrong type of band. So why don't you talk about the, the hypertensive uh, response yeah. risk, but also in this same uh, uh, discussion, also the risk of uh, DVTs, deep vein thrombosis, mm -hmm. which you know, anyone with any simple amount of training is going to realize is a concern, or if they don't, they should realize it's a concern. But so why don't you address those, because those are the two okay. primary issues yeah. that people have with it. So um, deep vein thromboses, DVTs, or blood clots in, in the veins in an extremity um, can, can be deadly. Uh, it's a problem associated, typically we see it uh, post-operatively in surgery. Um, but one, there's a, there was a Dr. Verkow uh, back in the 1800s or something like that, who identified that there were three conditions that were necessary. One was venous stasis. And if you don't have arterial occlusion, you don't get venous stasis. And if you're doing the exercises where the muscle pump is pushing the venous blood past and the arterial is then backfilling into this space, then you never get stasis. So one of the things about being safe is never occlude the arteries. That way you never get venous stasis and that way you don't get uh, deep venous thromboses. The other aspect or another third of the Virco's triad is uh, endothelial damage that you of course get when you're using a scalpel or a, a bovie to cut and, and cauterize blood vessels in the operating room. But with blood, normal blood flow restriction training, you don't injury, uh, you don't injure those uh, our, our vessels at all. So you, don't, you also don't get this endothelial damage that can start a uh, clotting cascade. You get the reverse with VEGF, you get endothelial improvement. Exactly. And so um, if you, there was a study done by, again by Dr. Sato, where he looked at uh, a large number of people, I think it was 12,462 people or 642 people uh, that had been doing katsu of which 22% had been hospitalized. And in Japan, uh, the incidence of DVTs is about one in 100 in those hospitalized uh, populations. And it worked out that um, they had about one in 2,000 um, DVTs in, in the same 
kind of hospitalized people. So there was actually a lower incidence of DVTs. Dramatically lower. In those people that had, had been doing katsu in this case. Um, the same cannot be said for uh, these wide rigid systems where they're, um, they're, they're what are used in the operating room and basically uh, have a pretty high incidence of uh, DVTs associated with them. Now, um, the other thing that you mentioned is hypertension. And uh, um, that ends up being a very interesting thing. They, they, the uh, contraindications in the uh, surgical tourniquet world would say if you have somebody with uh, uncontrolled hypertension, that is an absolute contraindication to using these, using these things. So uh, it is a real and uh, important consideration uh, when you're using the wide rigid systems. Also, the wide rigid systems, when the muscles contract, as I said before, there's kind of nowhere to go, and that induces ischemia and potentially damage to the exercising muscle. And this causes a reflex exercise pressure response uh, that's, uh, that can be manifest as uh, increasing uh, hypertension. Now, um, as it happens, we um, uh, one of my uh, sons, who's doing a PhD at UT Austin, uh, just did a thesis uh, and, on uh, looking at the difference in uh, hypertensive response to walking with um, uh, narrow elastic uh, bands versus a wide rigid uh, tourniquet system. And uh, he found that uh, the uh, wide rigid uh, uh, cuffs ended up causing a very robust hypertensive response that nearly doubled the double product uh, or the myocardial oxygen man above, uh, above the control exercise, where when uh, he used the narrow elastic bands, that ended up uh, being no different. Uh, in fact, slightly less than uh, just uh, walking on the treadmill by itself without any bands on. So uh, I think it relates to this idea of a relatively narrow uh, elastic setup that uh, doesn't elicit this kind of hypertensive, hypertensive risk that the, uh, the wider systems and rigid systems do. Okay, last question before we let you show how you put your bands on. Uh, there are those who can't afford your system and, uh, or the Katsu system, of course. So there are less expensive alternatives uh, that you can get online that cost as little as $15 for a set of bands that you can put on your arms that do meet the requirements that have, they're not very wide, they're only one inch, and they're elastic, which is, I think, the two of the key variables. So, you know, uh, so the, the size, the width size, and the, and the elasticity. So, and they seem to generate enough pressure, and I use those, and I like to travel with them. They, you can put, fold them up and put them in your palm of your hand. They're so small. They only weigh a few ounces and are easy to travel with. So it's it obviously, and you can pretty much know, get a consistent uh, reading of when you reapply them. So you can get a consistency in the training. And do you, do you perceive any dangers using those systems? I mean, not as optimal as the more expensive systems, but for those who are on a tight budget and can't afford the other ones, what are, what are your thoughts? On that? Well, uh, I would say that if that's the only thing you have, um, that they're unlikely to be as safe as you'd like them to be and 
and unlikely to be as effective as you'd like them to be. Now, in your case, you're used to using uh, systems that are pneumatic and controllable mm -hmm. and all that sort of right. thing. So you so know, know what the feeling, right. yeah. you, you know what those feelings are to look for. But if you've never had that experience, then you don't really know where to go with these cheap things. So if that's what you're getting in the first place, it's, uh, it's unlikely to be both safe and effective. Um, and there's also a difference. Uh, there's, for example, you could take a Cub Scout belt that you get at Walgreens, mm -hmm. and that would be an example of a narrow, um, uh, rigid system. Yes. And yeah. that's that's a good way to produce stasis and to and to do some damage to both. Don't want to do that. Blood, yeah. Right. So um, uh, we we feel we uh, uh, have struck a middle ground an abundance of caution to make sure we're as safe as possible uh, and still allow us to have uh, some control over the situation with the, with the inflatable portion. Yeah, that we can then yeah it's, it's still not terribly expensive when you consider the cost of most exercise equipment. I mean, gosh, compared to almost any treadmill uh, that people would get, uh, which I think is a, I don't know, you probably have a different opinion, but I think they're a waste of time. I mean, there's so many better things to do to get yourself fit than waste your time on a treadmill. Uh, uh, but, it's, it's much nicer to be outdoors, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's a fraction of the cost of a treadmill. So, so why don't you show us your Be Strong system, how easy is it set up on your arms? Yeah. So, um, here we go. And uh, this is, comes in a nice case. And does, yes. the case ends up having um, a pump and a set of armbands and a set of leg bands. And uh, uh, literally, to put these things on, it's uh, just put them through the wrap and put them up. And, and we want to put the armbands up high on the arm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're basically... Sort of um, the base of the bicep, right? Where you see yeah, the, it's, the impression. The top of the bicep and the base of the deltoid. Okay. And um, then you just attach the pump, and and then we have uh, when people are starting out, we just go to 200 millimeters of mercury on our pump, and um, and just to give people an idea, even though most people that's higher than they're hopefully higher than their systolic blood yeah. pressure. This is a total. This is not equating to systolic blood pressure. Right. So this pressure is the pressure that's in our barrels. Right. And it's got nothing to do with the person's blood pressure. Right. So, uh, and there we go. And when I'm ready to, ready to exercise, in general, yes. I'll, I'll put either just both armbands on or both leg bands on, but it, it happens in very short order. Yeah, and, it really takes a minute or two. Yeah. And, uh, and I can assure you that it's a lot more comfortable if you have clothing under those bands. The likelihood yeah. of pinching on bare because it can pinch a little bit on bare skin. Um, it can. Um, yeah. I would I would say that most people, I I I normally I wouldn't have my little sweater on over this. Yeah. Uh, I would generally use a t-shirt. Sometimes the band goes directly on my skin. Sometimes uh, uh, over the t-shirt. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for the legs, uh, basically some tights or exercise shorts or something like that are called for. Um, and uh, generally with the legs, it's almost always over some sort of material. It's mm -hmm. hard to, 
it's hard to have short enough shorts so that because yeah. uh, they go pretty high up, pretty right. high up. Yeah. And so, um, so I noticed you didn't really put a lot of extra pressure on there before you when you, as you tightened it. I mean, what's your rule for um, yeah. the initial pressure that you tighten the band with? Um, so there's a number of ways of going about this, but base, basically I, I just put these things on so they're firm and so that the the barrels or the, the inner layer is right on my shirt or skin. And um, that's really all there is to it. And so um, it, the word I use is firm. You put them on okay. so it's firm. Okay. And so, because uh, as you mentioned, that, that's another way that you couldn't increase the pressure is put that initial, make it much tighter. Uh, yeah, although it, it if, at least with our system, and that yeah. that that is true of Katsu. Yeah. With our system, um, that if you have all the air evacuated out of the out of these barrels in the first place, yeah, then then uh, there there's just a limit. You can okay, it's it's more of a restriction. Okay, yeah, you, you, there's only so it's far because you of the way the way the bot the band is constructed because you got stitching vertically right. that limits its stretchability. Okay, that makes sense. All right. So, so uh, one then, thing that can happen is you can put it on too loose. But the way oh, yeah. you know, you, the way you know that that happens is if it, if you can just slip it down. <laughs> Not a good idea. Yeah. You, and do you, what do you gradually increase up to? What would you progress well, up to? So for example, a twenty-year-old versus sixty-year-old. Yeah. So our our um, our initial pressure settings for these red bands. So let me let me back up and say that the bigger the cross-sectional area of the extremity, the higher the pressure you generally need. Mm -hmm. Also, the older the person, or uh, the, the closer to, to 20 to 30 years old they are, the higher the pressure they need. So the older they get, or literally younger they get than that, the less pressure that you do. And it, at one point, I wrote a very complicated algorithm, taking those things and some other things into consideration. But over time, we found that that uh, the easiest way to do this is we just made uh, four different size bands, and uh, we have our uh, let's see, we have uh, our number one bands, which are green, number two, which are red, number three, which are blue, and um, number four, which are yellow, and they're basically they're they're just bigger, bigger bands, and the pressures you use are proportional to those bands. So we have a bunch, a series of initial pressures to use for our bands, and then beyond that, the intensity, the intensity is is chosen by the. Um, uh, by the feelings of fatigue. And if you're getting good feelings of fatigue, the exercises you're doing and the pressures you're using are just fine and you don't really have to change anything. Over time, uh, usually those pressures creep up to give you an idea. I've been doing this for quite a number of years and uh, where the initial uh, pressures with the uh, red bands is supposed to be 200. I generally am at 300 with with my uh, arm exercises. And I would say the same thing for legs. Uh, I'm a blue number three on my legs and uh, uh, that calls for a pressure of uh, 
250 initially, and I would say that I'm at 350 to 400 on my legs routinely. And 400 is the upper limit, right? Uh, our pumps go up to 500, but. Oh, 500, yeah. okay, didn't know yeah. okay. All right, well, this is great. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I, just that, you know, really, uh, on one hand, we have to give a lot of credit to Dr. Sato for hanging in there for 30 years, uh, doing trial and error and experimenting with this thing. He had identified something that he thought was special and he's pursued it. And uh, um, I think this is a, a way for all of us to get our anti-aging medicine in. And uh, uh, it's well, done in an in a easy way to comply with uh, a regular it, you exercise know, program. I, I, I like to pick your brain up because I'm in absolute agreement with you. I think it's one of the most important components of an effective uh, anti-aging strategy. But can you just share with us why you believe that's so? Um, I, I would say because of the results I've seen in, in, in our center here where we've had people of all sorts of ages and they've had dramatic improvements in, in fitness and function. And uh, um, we haven't killed anybody yet, so uh, <laughs> on, onward right. they go. Yeah, because I, I, to me, it seems it's the missing part of the equation for most longevity protocols. I mean, they, they superficially acknowledge exercise, but never really get into the details and certainly never address this issue of maintaining up the, up the well, optimal muscle mass is, is a viable endocrine organ. I, th I think the big contribution when you get right down to it is that this provides doable exercises that pretty much anybody can do from just getting up and out of your chair and sitting back down. Uh, to getting a glass of water off of a shelf as forms of activities of daily living that can be turned into exercises where you can get a significant um, fitness improvement when you're using blood flow restriction bands. Yeah. And uh, where the normal kinds of workouts that it would take to get those benefits and exercise are, are just not really possible uh, as we age. Well, thank you for your time and sharing your wisdom with us and this incredibly powerful innovation in exercise therapy that has essentially uh, should be done by just about everyone. There's very few people who wouldn't benefit from it, even competitive athletes. I mean, they shouldn't use this exclusively, but it would certainly right. be a part of the regimen. We're, we're on the brink of the revolution. It's about to take off. Yeah, I agree. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you so much.